Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Coming up on the payoff, Jennifer Leone has a special story and a special message, and it's unique, just like the rest of ours in sobriety, but it's one that really right now is glowing. She just started up JSL Recovery. She's got a podcast called Jenny Sober Lifestyle. She was a model. She was an actress, grew up in Canada, moved to L.A., and uh, it was living hard, living fast, and was brought to her knees by alcohol and drugs. And she's lived life after recovery, just like the rest of us, ups and downs. One of those ups includes getting full custody of her son uh, and being seven years sober. She got sober on my dad's birthday, August 5th, so I can't forget about that. And then she's awesome. She's somebody who recovers out loud. She started the hashtag. I'm saying that, not her. And uh, she is part of a movement. We talk a little bit about the fentanyl epidemic, uh, topics like that that are extremely important. And Topics like sobriety, which, of course, this podcast is all about and is extremely important as well. So coming up, Jennifer Leone. But first, Kevin Souza. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Can cool, I cool. ask you a question, too? Because I'm curious yeah, about stuff. Yeah, ask me whatever you want. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Um, we, yeah. Okay. So, by the way, so home used to be Canada. Where right now you're in? Uh, yeah, California. I'm in Orange County. Yeah, Southern California, Orange County. Do you know where that is? Have you been sure, out here? Yeah, before? my brother lived in Hermosa, so I've spent oh, a bunch okay. of time out there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm in Huntington Beach. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Familiar. Surf city. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I came from Canada. I was born and raised in Vancouver. Have you been there? Uh, I have not. It's beautiful out here. Uh, yeah, it is. And I came out here at 19. So I've been here for a long time. Okay. Now, what brought you to California? Uh, I came out here to do a TV show that I had gotten booked on. And um, I was, you know, already running and gunning in my lifestyle and out of control. And uh, just thought it would be a good idea. One of my, one of my great ideas impulsively to, to just pack a suitcase with no family or friends and get on a plane and come to the States. And so you, so before we get, we'll get back to like, you know, your move and, and your work acting and modeling, but you started to do drugs, I guess, when you were around 12 years old, you said 12 or 13. Yeah, I was a really young age. You know, for me, I had a lot of childhood trauma. And so um, that just, you know, snowballed into starting to use things, trying to numb stuff out. Um, and yeah, that started at, at about 12 years old. So was, was there a, a specific instance you remember? Like I always say my first like spiritual experience was you could say when I was, when I started to drink, like right around high school, but when I was a kid, they put me and people take doctors prescribed drugs, but this drug affected me differently. Like doctors, they put me on Adderall when I was like probably in like second or third grade. And I can really remember feeling like okay, like now I'm as good as everyone else and I chemically felt differently. And it was some sort of, some sort of change in, in me. Do you have a, a memory, a recollection when you took drugs for the first time and they actually worked or your mind said, ah, oh, okay. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's times when I was younger for sure, but just going off the Adderall just real quick is like, I had the same experience when I did Adderall. Like most of my stuff that I was on were doctor prescribed. Um, but yeah, when I, when I took Adderall or when I took Xanax, it was like, okay, now, now I belong. Now I, you know, I can be social. I can get stuff done. You know, I just, I always felt off and that I was different than every, anybody, everybody else. And with those things, it's like, I could do anything, but that wasn't until later, but yeah, at a young age, I think it was probably, you know, the alcohol, um, and, uh, and like, Back then, it was like a lot of acid and like party drugs. Um, 
MDMA, like Molly and all that, I think ecstasy was probably that for me at a very young age because, you know, it just hits those endorphins and dopamine and serotonin and all those feel good things. So like everything bad that I didn't want to feel, um, I could take ecstasy and just feel like I was on cloud nine without a worry in the world, uh, for the whole weekend, you know? And so that's, that was probably that experience for me at a very young age. How'd you end up doing it? I, I, one part about your story that I find super intriguing is you're, you're doing psychedelics at a young age. Uh-huh. How, how do you get opened up to that experience? <laughs> Honestly, I don't know if it's just where I was raised, but in Vancouver, I was in like a smaller town in the suburbs and it was everywhere. Like we would just get sheets of acid and, um, yeah, mushrooms, ecstasy. Like we were just, it was just normal. Like I know it's not normal, but in our little sure. group of kids, it was normal to have that stuff around. Yeah. It's a Canadian thing. I don't know. <laughs> Did you grow up in a big drinking culture? Yeah. I mean, you know, it was the typical, all the moms for the most part, like stayed home, you know, I was in the suburbs. So housewives, moms that, you know, they're drinking all day, having their wine, you know, drinking out in the, in the garage and, you know, the, the men are watching sports and drinking. Like it was the social thing to do, you yeah. know, to, see everybody drinking all the time. Hence the reason why, you know, me and my group of people that I was hanging out with, we all started drinking early too, because that's what we were surrounded by. Yeah. You mentioned that you felt sort of like, like I could totally relate, like, like less than like, or like you don't even know you feel less than until you have a drink and you feel like, Oh man, I'm all the way there. Like, it's yeah, I, mean, for me, I always suffered with anxiety. Um, I still do. I just cope with it now. I had really bad um, like social anxiety. And so for me, that really gave me this feeling of like, oh, my anxiety's gone. You know, I can do anything. So it was trying to get rid of that anxiety. And then Xanax came into play, but alcohol was the first one. How did you end up like, were there any consequences for you early on? I think you said you had a pretty, no, nobody knew for, for such a long time that you were addicted to these like, like hardcore prescriptions. I mean, and they become hardcore for me as an addict. I, I, I they were hardcore for me cause I, I, I liked them too much. And I knew even at the time I liked them too much, but then you talk about, which I can relate to like the doctor shopping or just finding ways to get what you need. There's this, we we're so brilliant when we have to, <laughs> we have to figure all this oh, out. Yeah. yeah. We're master manipulators. We're very persuasive when we're in our addiction. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah. That's for sure. But, um, you know, yeah, I was doctor prescribed. I honestly did not think it was a problem for such a long time. And, um, you know, it's just, as, as you know, your tolerance just goes up and up and up. And, um, it wasn't until probably like 10 or 10 plus years in that I tried to stop taking, you know, all the, all the pills at was Adderall, Xanax and, you know, Norcos or Roxy's or something like that, yeah. um, pain medication. And then I tried to stop and was like, holy shit, you know, like I can't just stop. I'm going to get sick. This is crazy. And so instead of like thinking, okay, well then what's the healthy thing to do? Let's, let's get some help here. I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to stay on these pills the rest of my life because <laughs> <laughs> I, I just have to maintain this lifestyle. But yeah, so people didn't really know what was going on with me. Um, until it got like really bad, you know, in the sense of like getting really sloppy, you know, like I didn't hang out with drug addicts. Um, I had nice things. I worked. I had what a home. Were you kind of like, like, did you hang out with people? Like I, I used to do this number, like I, they never would know that I was like holding drugs or on drugs. Uh, and I would just use it all to myself and didn't, it was like my like secret for such a long time. And then similar to yeah. you, I started to get sloppy and your life goes outside the lines and, and people start to notice. Yeah, exactly. And and, I, and I'm sure, you know, working in the entertainment industry, I'm sure there was, you know, lots of other people that were doing stuff too. But yeah, I, I never talked about it with anybody. Nobody, nobody knew. It wasn't until like the last three or four years before I got sober where I started drinking. And when I started drinking, because I wasn't drinking for all those years, I started drinking 
really young at like 12, 13, drank for a few years, but then stopped drinking altogether. And it was just pills up until, yeah, the last like three, four years. And I thought, okay, well, I'll start drinking and I'll be able to, you know, get myself off all these pills. It was a blessing in disguise because I just got so sloppy that I ended up, you know, getting help. But, but yeah, um, it definitely was a secret that definitely kept me sick. I would isolate, um, you know, I had my, my stashes all over the house, you know, different spots that I would keep stuff and just making sure that I always had my pills and that nobody knew. And that I, cause you know, I would get up and like my son just left for school. He's in 10th grade, but you know, he was in elementary school and I'm getting him up for school, getting him to school, getting stuff done all day for the most part, you know, because I've taken my little cocktail every morning yeah. and that would go through the day but if i didn't take that cocktail yeah it'd be a complete disaster but it was more towards the end like maintaining than like really getting messed up what were you doing in the entertainment industry like i know you mentioned you acted you modeled but like what was the progression of that and and how did like substance play a role yeah so i started modeling and acting back in vancouver before i came out here um and you know felt a passion in that. And I wanted to, you know, live the Hollywood dream and become a famous actress or model. And I came out here and, and started working on a TV show. Um, and then, you know, what TV I show? Can I ask what show? I mean, there was a few different things I did. I mean, it was this um, show called Battle Dome, which is like American Gladiators. It went for two seasons. I was on um, like several different like teen movies back in the day, like, you know, little, little roles. But you're working. And you're working. Huh? You were I mean, working. Yeah. Like yeah. I was, I was consistently working. I was booking a lot of modeling gigs. Um, but, you know, when I look back, like when you're taking the Adderall and the opiates are, are one thing, right? They get you, get you going, invincible, no pain, all that. But when you take Xanax in like high doses, it really like messes up like rational thinking <laughs> and, and logic, right? And like being able to play the tape through um, and being able to pause, like very impulsive. And so, you know, when I was taking all that Xanax and all this other stuff, it's like, I didn't really think about my actions at the time and what I was going to get myself involved with. All I knew was that I wanted to live this like lifestyle. I wanted to have lots of money. I wanted to hang out with celebrities and rock stars and I wanted a big fat house and a fancy car. Right. And yeah, so, I mean, honestly, it's like the American well, dream. I, I, I like, it's not gonna, as, as a kid growing up, it was the same, same, I had the same wishes, just maybe like a different Avenue there, but that's what I wanted. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. Little did I know at the time that, you know, I was trying to do all these things to feel a, fill a void inside me that, you know, I needed to work on um, when I worked on it in recovery. But I just, you know, I started getting offers to do more adult stuff, you know, like topless magazines, Playboy, Penthouse, Hustler, like all the companies. Right. And so that just progressed. Like the money was fast. It was easy. Um, and I eventually... Uh, met up with Jenna Jameson. You know, she offered me a contract with with a company that she had under Playboy, um, and I went under contract. And it's like <clears throat> all sense of reality at that point was completely out the window yeah. because I'm hanging out with people that don't really have morals and integrity for yeah. the most part, right? And it's just a free for all. So, like I said, like probably most people were out there using drugs and doing stuff, but we didn't do it together. It wasn't like a bunch of people sitting in a room doing heroin or something crazy like yeah. that. Um, but it was just this gnarly lifestyle where I was just, you know, traveling all over the place and, you know, doing guest spots here and signings here and parties here and hosting events here and photo shoots and acting. It was just, it was nuts. And, um, you know, it's, it's very, it's a very odd, uncomfortable feeling getting out of that industry. It's really hard. Yeah. The adult uh, films. Yeah, yeah, well, girl, I was a girl, girl contract star. So okay. I was like the biggest girl, girl contract star out there in my time. Um, and, you know, just living this life. But when you get out of that lifestyle, you have to like find your identity all over again yeah. because you're known as an AKA. So I had another name. Uh -huh. So nobody knew who I was. Nobody knew the real me. Nobody knew that I was on drugs. 
And so as you can imagine, trying to get out of that and start over when that's all you've really known is not an easy task. How, how do you do it? <laughs> I mean, how do you, you know, and, and I honestly, like, as I can relate to you in like different ways, like in, in my past, like drugs would help me do all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, did you, cause it would just, it would soothe the ride, right? Like, it would, like now I actually have to walk through the pain. Now I have to yeah. actually like, whether it's a breakup or a job or whatever, or an uncomfortable situation, it's like, all right, what I got to walk through these feelings. But like my initial reaction when I'm faced with something like fearful, like you're talking about, or something that's going to be really hard, I, I just have, I have fear, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So did you use drugs to kind of like move out of it or how, what happened? Yeah, no, um, there was, a. A series of events that led up to a very traumatic event where I was raped by one of the Playboy executives. Uh-huh. Um, and at that point, that was it for me working in that industry. Um, so I retired out of that industry and then soon after that um, decided to get sober. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I got sober, it's it's crazy because, you know, coming off drugs and alcohol is one thing. But, you know, finding your identity, figuring out who you are, going through all those things, um, it, it's it's a whole other thing. And it takes so long. And so <clears throat> it was a real uncomfortable, painful process. But, you know, while, while I was in treatment, I'd gone through detox, I'm in residential, and I just had like this aha moment, this like spiritual awakening where I knew it was God telling me, and he put it on my heart that I needed to take everything that I'd been through, all the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, and use it as fuel to help others in one capacity or another and turn all the negative into positive. And I just knew it. There there was nothing more clear, um, as clear as day, that's what I needed to do. And that's what I proceeded to do. So while I was in treatment, I put myself back in school and, um, you know, I humbled myself. I went from, you know, not getting out of bed unless I was making a certain amount of money (laughs) to, to like working as an intern at the beginning, making $16 an hour. That's what I did. I was, I, I went to rehab. I had some pretty big jobs working in sports, working in the NBA. I went to treatment. I went to a halfway house. They were like, well, you got to get a job. I was like, I'm not getting a job. And they're like, well, if you want to stay and you want to keep on this mission that you have and you're, st- I was starting to feel good. They're like, you have to get a job. I worked at a Kentucky fried chicken, you know, and I'm in my yeah, early thirties and I'm it. like, wow, if somebody from my like past life, I remember thinking like if somebody from my past life were to get off I-95 and come into this KFC <laughs> in suburban Baltimore, I, I, at that point I probably would have hit the floor, you know, I just, but, yeah. but I did, but I did it. And, and by the time I left yep. the job, I was f- fucking proud of it. Oh, it's it's the most amazing feeling when you actually surrender and have the willingness to to really change your life and humble yourself. You know, that alone was huge for me because when you come from like both of us, you know, having some stardom and some money and and with those circles of people, and then more you have you to let, me. more you than me, but okay. <laughs> but when you have to let it yeah. go and start over, it is like a rebirth, yeah. you know. I got rid of most of my belongings. I started over in like a little one bedroom that I was renting from someone else because I I have my son, but I had my ex who's now my ex-husband. And, you know, I left our family home. Um, I started off, started completely over again, you know, and here I am seven, seven and just seven and change years later. And, you know, it's beyond my wildest dreams, but I had to go through all of that to get here. And, And that was a good for even into the fifth year of my recovery before things really started to turn around for me in the sense of like, okay, I'm, I'm financially secure, but, but more so than that, just the gifts of sobriety, being able to know what I want, you know, um, have the confidence, love myself, you know, overcome trauma, find forgiveness, you know, figure out who I really am and what I want. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's been monumental over like the last couple of years of my recovery. August 5th, 2016. That's my dad's birthday. So that's how I remember it so well. Cause I, I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I was I, like, wow, you did yeah. your research. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> yeah. That's, that's when you got sober. I, as, uh-huh. This is something that I can't relate to, but some people out there can, when you're somebody that's like re- a real attractive person and you get sober, right? 
Like, how does that, when you start to figure out, like, what really is, like, do people want me for me or do people want me for the person I am inside? Which, by the way, is you're worthy of all the, the stuff. But, like, you know, in an industry where there's attraction, right, based on a lot of it's based on attraction and aesthetics, how important is it to just go right in to sobriety? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, I truly believe what you put out, you get back and people are always going to be judgmental. You know, it, it, we're human. It's, it's human nature to be judgmental. Even if we're the most, even if we're Dalai Lama, if we're the most peaceful person <laughs> ever, right? Like we cannot help but have judgments, but, um, you know, I sit in a space now where I'm comfortable with who I am and I just show up for myself every day authentically. And when I do that and I'm just like, this is me, right? Um, I surround myself with the right people. They they align with me. And, you know, a lot of people, especially women, because women can be super competitive and catty. Unfortunately, I hate to say that, but it's just the truth. Um, but once they like get past this and, and see who I am. And I, the only way I can do that is by just being authentic. Then they go, Oh, she's, she's super cool. You know, <laughs> she's yeah. just a normal person. And, um, but I think the only way that I can do any of that is to just live an authentic life every day. When, when you, when you go through treatment and you are living like a really authentic life and that is super attractive, like that energy you're putting out there. And, and when you're, when the, but the road to that is not, is not easy. Like you mentioned, like it wasn't until the fourth or fifth year that, you know, maybe you started to see the gifts kind of, I, I, right. Early on, we see the gifts come and we feel them internally, but like outside, um, I don't know, man, life goes up and down. I'm not quite sure what I'm saying, but you, you, you know, life goes up and down on the outside. And sometimes we do get returns on these investments, you know, on, on the outside. And your return mm -hmm. now is like helping other people with your story. Um, and you've really sort of taken off doing this. How, like, yeah. how, how have you been able to help other people, women, I'm sure specifically, but dudes too, with, with your story and with, you know, with exactly who Jennifer Leone is? Yeah, you know, when I got sober for the first couple of years, I really had this like victim mentality of, you know, oh, you know, maybe maybe that's going to happen for you. And oh, you talk about this great life and blah, blah, blah. And that's not going to be me. Right. And then over time, I really had to switch my mindset to have the why not me mentality. You know, why? Why can't I have these things? Why can't I live this life? Why can't I be happy and content? Why can't you know, I live a fulfilling life. And, and, you know, with that shift, I went from a victim to a survivor and I embraced, you know, the mindset of I can do anything I want. And so when I started thinking that way, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to recover out loud because if I recover out loud, you know, those, um, that are suffering in silence, you know, I might be able to plant a seed and, and I'm going to be relatable to people. And, relatability is such a powerful tool. You know, we, we have therapists and people that can help us. And, and they, I've had many therapists. I've done amazing work, work with me with stuff that I had to work on, but there's, there's something magical about being relatable, you You're know, and being able qualified to, have, to help other women yeah. going through struggles, right? Like you are. exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, that's like a superpower that we have really. And I, and I know yeah. when shit gets tough, um, around the outside for me i'll go to a meeting and plug in and be like oh this is that's right this is my purpose this is forget mm -hmm. all that stuff like this is what i'm supposed to be doing you know and, yeah and it seems like that's i know it's what happened for you because you're telling me how important was it for you because my, my my and honestly i didn't have the platform you did i've developed a little bit of one but when i got sober like it really was for me the only way out of this was pretty much out loud Everybody knew that I had an issue. Everybody knew that I went to treatment and then I went to an extended care place and that I was like living, you know, whatever. I was doing what I needed to do to get well. Like I wasn't, I tell people I wasn't around alcohol, I don't think for like 18 months, you know? And so that's what just I needed. But I was yeah. pretty, if you knew me, you knew I was sober. Today, if you know me, you eventually within the next hour or two, you're going to know that I'm sober. How important was that for you to just embrace it? And just to recover out loud. I mean, it was everything. It was everything. You know, I had to 
live it fully, you know, and to, to some people that stay anonymous, you know, to each their own. But for me, I had to completely be engulfed with recovery and recovering out loud in every aspect of my life, the company that I keep, you know, my mentors, um, my teachers, my, you know, my family, my friends, like everybody that's around me knows everything about what I'm going through. Um, and, and it's just, it's, it's for me, I don't know any other way to live, but out loud like this in every aspect of my life. I mean, I go talk about it anywhere I go. I talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's super important. When you started to get sober, did you start to kind of lift off? Like, were you going to, to meetings in, in Southern California? Were you like, what did that look like for you early on? Cause a lot of people, men or women are like, how do I get this shit started? Like, here's Jennifer. She's out there glowing right now. But I know, just like you know, I, I, I crawled into to, to treatment. You know, like, how did you start to, like, take flight uh, in, in your recovery early on? Yeah. Um, so when I first got sober, I had a sponsor. I worked in AA program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, she actually came and read with me once a week while I was still in treatment. And, um, I did that for a solid year, year and a half, mm -hmm. mm. went through the steps, which I encourage anybody and everybody to go through the steps. Even if you're in recovery or not, they're <laughs> amazing. Um, and you know, would go to meetings all the time, had a really good woman's support group that I went to, which I thought was like super valuable, um, you know, and started being of service. And, you know, just living a purposeful, purposeful life, you know, on top of that, I was seeing a therapist and doing really intensive work, um, trauma informed therapists and also EMDR um, for people out there that have suffered with trauma, PTSD, I would Google EMDR and, and check out maybe that's something you'd want to incorporate. Um, and then just, you know, incorporate also a real spiritual path into my life. And so those three things, those were, those were really important to work an AA program, to have a strong group of women around me, good support groups, um, a really good therapist and yeah, just in touch with my spirituality. So how important was the therapy component for you as you started to grow? Cause I'm, I'm do I'm just now I'm starting to sink my teeth more into therapy along with my 12 step program with AA. Um, and I'm starting to realize, I'm starting to wish I would have been doing it the whole time. Uh, like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. How important was that, that to sprinkle that on top? I mean, it was just as important as anything else that I was doing back then. It, it was in the top things of things to do. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like when we're drinking and using, we're just covering up. It's just a symptom of what the underlying issue really is, you know? And so if we don't, really get nitty and gritty and dig up that underlying issue and, and deal with it, then we're never really going to be happy or healed or feel content. We're going to be irritable, restless, discontent, yeah. right. And, uh, and not, and not be our, our, to our best abilities. So yeah, I think it's super important that you go to therapy. <laughs> how, how did you, I feel like you're talking to me. Yeah. You go to therapy. <laughs> no, no, in yeah, general, I know. if you're in recovery, uh, go to therapy. <laughs> How did you start to, like, how has your program changed? It sounds like it might have changed a little bit because you said that's what I was doing early on. How is it? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I don't do an AA program anymore. I don't have anything against it, but, um, like, I don't actively work with a sponsor anymore. I maybe go to a meeting here or there, but it's not, like, feeling like I need to go, you know, every week or anything like that. So I'll just, you know, do it here or there when I feel it's needed. I know when I physically feel certain things now, when I start to feel uncomfortable, when I start to get a little restless, anxious, it's like, okay, time to take a look at this, what's going on, hit a meeting, you know, get out there and talk to somebody. Um, so I'll do it now when I feel those feelings coming up. And then, you know, therapy, I've been off and on with therapy pretty much the whole time. Like I, I love therapy. You don't just need to go to therapy when something's wrong. You can go to therapy yeah. for like me. And I've seen different therapists for different things, you know, like success coaches and, um, you know, relationship therapists. And, you know, it's, it's like, there's so many different types of therapy that you can do. And I'm just a firm believer in like always learning and growing in that space, you know, so I'll, I'll do it off and on. Um, 
but yeah, the only thing I don't do steady anymore is go to meetings. When you like, like as far as when you get sober and and you deal with relationships, like I always ask everybody this, like how, how, how was that? Cause for me, like alcohol and drugs was the ultimate like elixir and it would totally like, that's was my conduit to in any relationship, you know, like emotional, yeah. sexual, how did you sort of find your way there? Cause it's one of the, it's something, sometimes Jen, it'll keep people, it kept me from getting sober. Like, how am mm -hmm. I going to be in a relationship without alcohol? That is what I use to talk to people. Um, For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, I don't suggest dating when you're in early recovery because that can just set you off down down a bad road and a lot of people relapse over that because and I did it you know I was dating early in recovery and and I you know when I look back I never should have been doing that but um matters of the heart will 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 we'll, a guy told us this me this in early recovery at the halfway house matters of the heart will we'll get you drunk dude matters of the heart yeah will we'll, we'll make you do drugs in early recovery yeah absolutely I mean I've seen it so many times um you know it's funny because i'm at a point right now where i'm not even trying to get seriously involved with anybody because um i feel like i feel like as you get older well i'll speak for myself so as i've gotten older you know and i've gotten further into my recovery like i really know what i want right and so um I will intentionally date. And I think when you're like intentionally dating, then it can be done in a way that's more healthy, you know, and it's not just these uncomfortable. I think people like go out on dates all the time and it's like awkward. It's people drink, right? Yeah. Like you think about all the dating, I've never been on any of them, but people, these dating apps, I, I watched something where they were saying that like nine times out of 10, everybody that goes and meets up off a dating app, they're drinking Yeah. because it's uncomfortable. You know what I mean? You're going and meeting, let's be real. We're human. You're going and meeting someone for the first time. You've met them off this app. You don't really know what they look like. Then you got to sit there and have this awkward conversation. So you know what I mean? So what's going to help yeah. like having a drink. Yeah. So I think if you can like intentionally date, you know, like maybe you meet somebody at a hobby you like to do or, or, you know, something like that where it's, you already have that thing in common or you're going and doing an activity together. I think those kind of things would help a lot um to ease that anxiety and not feel like you have to have a drink especially if you're going out with people that are normies yeah you know, i don't suggest that early on either i mean for me i choose not to be with somebody that's a normie um maybe at some point in my life i would but i just don't want to be around somebody that's drinking like it's just oh, that's your call you, you get to that's a beautiful thing about being sober is empowering. Like we get to choose, we get to be intentional. It's not so flimsy. My lifestyle before, right? Like if yeah, I'm in exactly. the wind, to, if I'm in the wind today, um, and making decisions based upon like pleasing others, or then I'm in trouble, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Exactly. So I want to ask you about how you got into working in recovery. I mean, that's a ma that's a major step, and you've clearly developed like your own brand. Um, and then JSL Recovery, you have, you have the podcast too. When did you start to really figure that out for yourself? Like, okay, not only am I going to go to meetings and tell my story or meet other people through recovery, whatever that looks like, I'm, I'm now going to establish myself as somebody who, who can help people, you know, like get some official stuff behind this. Yeah, I mean, that actually started when I was in treatment. So when I was in residential, I one of the case managers said, Hey, well, if you want to help people, then you should go back to school for, you know, to work in this field. So I went back to school right out of treatment for drug and alcohol studies, got my degree in that. And that's when I started working as an intern at a treatment center with less than six months sober. So <laughs> I worked in several different treatment centers. I was a case manager. I was a therapist, I'm not therapist, she's a life coach. Um, I was a group facilitator. I had Women's Sober Living Homes. Are you familiar uh, with the place called Miriam's House? I've heard of them, yeah. My, my brother used to be on their board. He was a sober guy, too. Yeah. Oh, very yeah. cool. Uh -huh. He was, like, all about it, yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just kind of worked my way through the industry. Um, and then when COVID hit, um, <clears throat> I was with a company that I'd been with for a long time. And I thought, oh, you know what? Like, I have to find another way to connect with people because everybody was at home. 
And so I was like, well, maybe I'll just start going online. And so I just started going on Facebook, on going live on Facebook, right? And because <laughs> I started this, inst- I've had that Instagram account, but it's been dead for like two years, like never used it. And then I only started actively using it like just over three months ago. So before that, I was just Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. And so I was going live on Facebook. And then I thought, huh, it'd be really cool to like, actually interview other people too. Cause when I was going live, there was a lot of people engaging and I thought it'd be cool to, you know, be talking to these people more and having like a more in-depth conversation. And so that's where it all started, you know, where I like thought, well, I have the acting experience. I'm okay being in front of a camera. Why don't I use all of that? That didn't work out in the past for something positive. Now <clears throat> that's, that's purposeful work. And maybe it'll actually work out now because I'm doing it for the right reasons. <clears throat> and that's what I did. And so over like two or three years during COVID up until now, I've just been building that platform on social media. Um, I've been using the slogan sober lifestyle and recover out loud for over two years. Um, and I've just let it organically manifest into what it is now, um, which it's grown exponentially. And it's so cool now because there's so many people using recover out loud now. And I love that. Yeah. You know, I've, I'm not one to say, oh, it's mine, right? (laughs) The more, the better. And so it's great to see people out there recovering out loud, you know, using that slogan, having a sober lifestyle. Um, And, you know, I just, I get so much positive feedback from people about it. It's Yeah, it's it's awesome. You're you're like a light. And I'm telling you, I also think this too. And look, I got sober using... AA 12 steps. Like, so I'm not here to try to reinvent the wheel or change that for me. It is very cool. I got sober because people were like famous people were talking about being sober. Like I really did. Like I would see Rob Lowe or I would see a famous baseball player, this guy, Dennis Eckersley, and they would be talking about their struggles and getting sober. This guy, Chris Mullen, the basketball player. And I was like, Whoa, Maybe I can do it. Like, they're doing it. They're talking about it. And and honestly, it seems weird, but, and I don't mean to be shallow, but they seem cool. You know, like, you yeah. seem cool. Like, like you got the tats. Like, you're just kind of, like, out there, like, kind of, like, fuck it. And, like, we need a little more of that out, yeah. I think, in sobriety because I still what, – what always surprises me, and I want to see if you think this, too, is there's still, like, a – even though we have this movement, like we're cover out loud and I have a podcast and you have a podcast and we're really reaching as many people as we can, there's still like a major league stigma to it. It still is. And you can be, you know, West Coast, East Coast, Middle America. Uh, it's not hard to find somebody who's like, oh, like, you know, like, oh, oh I heard yeah. they went to rehab or they went, you know, uh-huh. they're, like there's something really wrong with them. Yeah, they have a disease. That's what's wrong. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's another reason why I do what I do is to switch the narrative of that and hopefully break the stigma. You know, it's, I want to show people out there that number one, um, you can get sober. Number two, you can get sober and live a life beyond your wildest dreams and it can be fun and it's cool and it's sexy and it's trendy and it's, and it's all these things because that's the other thing that people think like, oh, I'm going to get sober and then my life is over. You know, I'm never going to have fun again. It's just a bunch of games, you know, life sucks. And it's like, no, I want people to see like, no, you can have this great life and have adventure and amazing people in it and success and, and all these things, you know, and, and just really show people that because that's another stigma too. People really think it's just, oh, now life is over. And that will prevent people from getting sober for so long because they're like, ah, yeah. You know, just a little longer. I want to have fun still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. And that can kill you like that. extra, yep. Like, oh, like I remember before I went to uh, rehab, I was like, oh, I need a week. And I went back yeah. like, again. I, I could have died. I mean, like, it's kind of yep. I talk about it now and it's whatever. But yeah, I mean, who, who knows what what could have happened? What are some of the you know, you're dialed in recovery wise, like for yourself, for your own, like, you know, mental health? What's a, one of the hardest things you've been through in sobriety? that you would have never imagined would crop up and you would be able to conquer? I mean, I'd say the biggest thing that I went through in sobriety was um, fighting my ex for two and a half years in family court to get my son back full time. Um, I heard you, you mention know. that uh, earlier on an interview. I was curious. I, was, I didn't want to like, you know, bring up like. No, I'm, yeah. I'm an open book. It's all good. But, yeah. you know, a, a lot of people um, 
get very hopeless in that space when, you know, they're trying to get their kids back. And a lot of times they'll relapse over it and just give up and go, fuck, I can't do this because it's so hard. You know, we have this wreckage from our past that we have to deal with in recovery. We have to deal with it now. We have to deal with all this wreckage sober. So like all this stuff. And so, you know, I had to go through that process and it was extremely painful and extremely uncomfortable. And at times I felt that I wasn't going to get through, you know, I wasn't going to get through and what was I going to do? And my son didn't want anything to do with me. Um, and you know, I just, I, every day got up and started my day with gratitude. Um, I was humble for my life and I knew with every fiber in me that if I just kept being consistent every single day, get up, suit up, show up no matter what and did the right thing, things were going to work out. And so I did that and I truly took it one day at a time, which I think if you're going through a really hard situation, really take it one day at a time or I'll take and just get so overwhelming that you end up drinking. Um, and, you know, over time and consistency and patience and the willingness to be gentle on myself through the process and have the right team of people around me, meaning friends, loved ones, therapy, um, support, you know, I was able to, to get my son. And now my son lives with me full time. That's all you just and we said. Have, hey, bye. bye. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We have that, like yeah. the most amazing relationship and he knows that I do stuff like this, yeah. you know, and, and, and that he can talk to me about anything and that he saw over time and consistency that I showed up for him, you know, every single day, but I had to show up for myself first. So he saw that. Yeah. That's awesome. So um, I, want, I heard you say something about your son. Um, talk to people. And this is just a window into drugs. When you had your son, okay. You're mm -hmm. a mom. You realize, okay, I got to get off all this shit. Well, <laughs> what did you do? Yeah. I mean, well, kids don't keep us sober, you know, and as much as we would like to think that, and I, I always say, I cringe when I say that, but it's the truth, yeah. you know, like, but what about when you were, when you were, when you were pregnant, you tell the story. Oh, about when I was pregnant. Yeah. 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 No, I, I detoxed when I found out I was pregnant on my own in my bathtub. I'll never forget it. It was like 17 days of pure hell. I thought I was going to die. Um, he ended up being 10 pounds, very healthy baby. So that was, <laughs> yeah, it was worth it, but it was, I was so still in that space of being a drug addict that literally I was so excited to get to the hospital to have him because I knew that I was going to get pain medicine. I was like, Oh, this is great. You know, I'm just, I don't have to, I don't have to not take anything anymore. And literally I just started taking stuff immediately afterwards again. So, yeah. But, yeah, I detoxed in a bathtub for 17 days. And so then when you said kids can't keep you sober, I want to go back to that. So you start, like, he's born, and then mm -hmm. you're still, like, you, you fall back into that that cycle, right, of just of just using yeah. it. Were you drinking at this time? No, I wasn't drinking okay. at all. So and, and I was, you know, PTA mom and <laughs> with my son every day and doing all these things while popping Adderall and Xanax and pain pills all day. You know, that's, that's what it, that's what it was. And it's, yeah, it's, you know, if I just wasn't ready yet, I wasn't ready to do the work, you know, and it was, it was did okay. You have any, like, I did got you flirt with sobriety at all. Like I had this, I always tell people it literally took me and I wasn't in and out, in and out, but I had like moments where I would, get sober for like 90 days and then people will be passing around a joint and I'd be like, Oh, I can do that. Or I got, let me try that. And then I'd be off and running again. It took me 10 years to get a year legit. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like, did you have any of that? Like when you were kind of like one foot in and then you're like, ah, I, I'm not ready. One time, one time when, when my son was eight months old, I tried to get sober, um, lasted 28 days. And then I didn't try again after that. Okay. Yeah. No. What is, what's, what's the mission behind JSL recovery? Yeah. So JSL recovery by, is, by the way, how, how new is this? It's brand new. Brand it's been new. in the work while, but it is brand new. Um, JSL recovery is an outpatient treatment center. So what I found over the years working in a clinical space is that 
most programs are like 90 days or less. <clears throat> and then, you know, you're supposed to just go out there and like figure out life. Right. And like, I think it takes a solid like year to really do some good work, have that time to take care of yourself um, and figure out who you are and what you want out of life. And so um, this is an outpatient setting that people would come to after they went through detox residential. So they would come and they would do programming hours at my center and then, you know, live at sober living if they wanted to. But the whole concept is to provide a safe, supportive, welcoming environment where people can really immerse themselves in a culture of individuals like me that are on fire for recovery, um, you know, and, and be part of a community and do all the work you need to do while building relationships, while learning what you like to do, while finding your purpose, while exploring different hobbies, activities, um, and just be a safe place for people to come in the community and, you know, get the help they need long-term. So what do you like, you, you literally are with what you're talking about, this recovery, JSO recovery, and then you're just on the front lines. I see like, since I started following you, like I forget how you came across, but like it was maybe, I think, Maybe the sober motivation, dude. Um, I forget. But anyways, I saw one of your posts and you were like, literally, I, I forget what it was, but you were like fentanyl. I, I was like, wow. Because I think that is something that's, I mean, it's killing people all the time. And it's not yeah. no, nowhere near um, in the conversation like it needs to be. What, 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 have you, what have you seen with that that epidemic so far, trying to be there and fight it? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's one of the things I'm very passionate about. Um, and unfortunately, fentanyl is not going away anytime soon. Um, and being in the business that I'm in, you know, I'm constantly hearing about people dying. You know, there is no using drugs recreationally anymore. Yeah. You know, fentanyl had been around probably when both of us were using, we'd both be dead right yeah. now. There's mm -hmm. no way we'd be here. So I think, you know, the best thing that we can do is spread awareness and educate. And so, you know, I try to educate and spread awareness um, and also help out with um, uh, harm reduction like Narcan, uh, get it in people's hands so they can have that in case, you know, some, they do see someone that's overdosing. Um, but, you know, I really want to try to go into schools. That's one thing I want to do in the future, even down to like middle schools, not even high schools, middle schools, where they start experimenting with things, you know, and tell my story and talk to them about the dangers and risks of fentanyl because, I think a lot of people just don't know or they don't think it's going to be them. You know, these kids with these weed pens, it's like all these things now that you wouldn't think has fentanyl. And I know a mom that lost her 13 year old son from hitting a weed pen and it, there was fentanyl and then he died. You know, I talked to two people in the last less than two weeks that had a loved one die from fentanyl. We call it fentanyl poisoning now because it is poisoning. It's a weapon of mass destruction. It's killing 300 people a day, you know, and it's like someone had once said this to me and I, I say it now and hopefully people will carry that message. It's like, if you put it into a visual, if 300 people a day, that's an airplane going down every day. Hmm. And if an airplane went down in the United States every single day for a week, what would happen? You know, there'd be drastic change that would happen. Intervention, getting into solution. What do we need to do? Um, and, you know, I could go down a big rabbit hole with big pharma and, you know, what, what's going on here, but, but, in, but nonetheless, it's here, right? So what can we do? We can educate and we can get loud about it. So that's as where a, I'm saying. Yeah. Well, it's cool. As, as a son, it's cool what you're doing as, as a mom, how do you like moms listen to this? Right. And like, so what's your, what's your connection? What's your message to your son about this? Because, you know, we're talking about a minefield now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I live my life very openly. So because of what I do and being in recovery, um, he feels very open to talk to me. And so I have the conversation with him often. There is nothing left unsaid between the two of us. And I think a lot of parents are scared to talk to their children. There's still this stigma, right? That we talk about this space where it's like, ooh, well, if we're talking to them about it or if we're giving them Narcan or, ooh, that's pretty much like giving them permission to do it. It's like, just being blatantly honest, I got my son's drawer full of condoms because I'm like, listen, yeah. I don't want you having sex, but you're in 10th grade, it's gonna happen and like use it. You know what yeah. I mean? And it's the same thing, like, Unfortunately, most kids are going to experiment. So would you rather educate 
your kid or have them walk into it not knowing and then not feel safe to talk to you about it. Like we need to be talking openly about these things with our children. What's uh, what's the thing you would tell a young woman or a young man or anybody actually, doesn't matter how old they are, and they walk, they come to you, they're like, Jennifer, how do, how do I, I, I'm hopeless. I can't, I can't stop. You know, what's, what's your message? Well, there has to be that surrender. You know, there has to be that point in your life that you're just so sick of being sick and tired that you're willing to surrender a hundred percent and make a change. And to know that's the strongest thing you could do. You know, for so long, I thought it was a weakness of mine to have to ask for help. And it's really the strongest thing that you could possibly do. And once you do get to that spot and you can actually ask for help and actually talk to other people, it's like a huge weight just comes off of your shoulders. You know, you have to just trust the process. You have to trust the process. If you can see millions of us doing this and living these amazing lives, then you can do it too. You know, it's it's just really surrendering, trust the process, get that help and surround yourself with like-minded people that lift you up. So anything else, anything I left out? You said you had questions for me. Any questions? Oh, I was just, yeah, just like, where are you shooting this at? <laughs> so I'm in a studio in Central Texas. So right between okay. Dallas and Austin. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. And why did you start the podcast? Well, I got, basically, I got sober like about 11 years ago. And I got sober because of people like you and maybe me, like people that were sober out loud that, that had a, a voice and a platform. And so... I'd always kind of told myself if I get if I get out there enough or have a, a, a real platform, like I'm gonna start I'm gonna start a podcast. You know, I'm I'm gonna carry the message. And my my brother um, was in recovery. He just passed away. He he lived in California. He died of cancer just recently. I was talking to you about him. Yeah. I called him. I was like, you know, because there's traditions and all this stuff. You know, with the, with AA. So I was like, I was a little intimidated by that. I was like, Kev, what do I do? Like. He was like, do it. He's like, we need people out there talking about it. And so that was like three years ago. And, and, and I want to, I'll, I'll interview just like anybody. Um, nobody's anybody, but you know what I mean? And, but it's also yeah, cool yeah. yeah, to have people like you who are notable, who are, it's like, oh, wow. Like here's Jennifer talking about it. Or wow, here's Ryan Leaf talking about it. Or wow, here's Doug Overton. Like people that people know. So that relatability, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge deal. Nice. Yeah. That's one of the main things. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate you so much. I'm going through like a rough day. So I, so I, I, it was great to like, to, to like I was talking to you earlier, like to realize my purpose, you know? So I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to the payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza. And of course we are part of the rogue media network, all kinds of good podcasts. You can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course you can find this podcast and all those other ones, wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a rogue media network production. 